Hello, I'm Pat Esser, and I'm president of Cox Communications, and I'm lucky enough to be a 2016 Cable Hall of Fame inductee. I invite you to join me and other media and telecommunication leaders at the 20th Cable Hall of Fame celebration on April 26th in Washington, D.C. That evening, we'll honor six new illustrious honorees. If you want more information, visit CableHallOfFame.com. President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Welcome to America goes banana! He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today on our follow-up episode to TV 101, we'll be hearing the oral history of Evan Shapiro. Evan Shapiro is Executive Vice President of Digital Enterprises at NBC Universal and former President of Participant Media Television, Sundance Channel, and IFC Channel. Last time we heard Evan's TV 101, a crash course but comprehensive look into the inner workings of the cable television industry. Now we take a closer look into Evan Shapiro himself via his oral history filmed at the Cable Center in 2014. Hey, it's Stuart Schley for the Cable Center. Um, I'm privileged to be uh, hosting the second in two oral history interviews um, participated in by Evan Shapiro. Participated being a very intended pun. Evan, Evan is the president of Participant Media and of Pivot. He last uh, graced the Cable Center stage in 2007, I think, when you did an oral history that sort of brought us up to speed with your career path and, uh, and where you were then. Um, it's still obviously archived on the Cable Center uh, repository. So I thought, Evan, first of all, thanks for being with us. Sure. Oh, and I'm supposed to announce the date. It's April 28th, 2014. We are in Los Angeles on the eve of the 2014 Cable Show. But it's actually I, my birthday. Today, happy birthday! Excellent. We're not going to ask ages or dates. But um, <laughs> 23. But anyway, thanks for being with us. And so let's let's pick it up because when when we left you, when the Cable Center left you. Um, you had either been named or were about to be named president uh, and GM of um, IFC and Sundance Channel. And nothing was changing in the world of television except everything. Hulu was about to launch and there was a lot of disruption going on. So why don't you just um, take the mic, if you will, and tell us, um, kind of take us back to 07. Talk about the landscape and what you were doing and, and how things were evolving. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, uh, about a year after, maybe a little less after I last spoke to the Cable Center, um, we, uh, I was working at a company called, which was at the time called Rainbow Media, um, which has evolved into a spun-off company called AMC Networks. And we were um, about to purchase Sundance Channel from a bunch of partners, CBS, NBC. Um, and uh, it was an interesting decision. Uh, you know, we, we had the independent film channel. Um, and we were buying what ostensibly was the other independent film channel. Um, both started within a year of each other, um, about 13 years prior to that. And um, the decision was to really try to um, do as much as we could to um, corner the market on an intelligent, um, upscale, uh, smart, 
uh, television watcher who appreciated independent films, but also appreciated the artistry that went into the independent mind. Um, and the, the concept was to differentiate the brands. So by bringing them together, you could ensure that they weren't competing for identical viewers. Um, and what we did was we turned IFC much more into a young men's network. Um, we rebranded uh, to something called Always On, uh, slightly off, always on, slightly off. Um, and with Sundance, we really went towards a, a more uh, adult 25-54 female viewer um, with uh, some really good um, original nonfiction programming that was you know, launching off the back of Iconoclasts. Um, and then we really moved the brands towards original programming uh, very, very fast and, and, and with a lot of effort and investment. Um, IMC in the ensuing couple of years launched a, a slew of original programming, including um, a show with David Cross called The uh, Increasingly Poor Decisions of Todd Margaret. And, um, and, and in the case of uh, Sundance Channel, we launched a miniseries called Carlos, which actually wound up beating HBO for a Golden Globe. Um, and so, you know, both channels were set on their way towards distinct brands. And it was really, you know, I, I, television branding was something that I had uh, really studied and worked in a number of years leading up to that point. But it was there that that really understanding the, the key elements of differentiating a brand on, on a spectrum um, became incredibly clear for me. Um, because when you sit two brands next to each other that have similar aspects, um, creating a true differentiation between the two um, was it was a full-time job and, and making sure that they didn't cross into each other's streams uh, too much. And there are a number of different reasons for that. We were just talking about this. One is the, you know, the cable operator demands it. Um, they don't want a bunch of channels that look exactly alike. Even if, even if the ratings are high, if they all look alike, nothing brings distinction or, or intrinsic value unto itself. Um, and the second is really, uh, you know, from the consumer standpoint, it's important to know that, you know, destinations that they find out there for programming, especially with the proliferation of all these new platforms like Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and iTunes, um, you know, that there's, that there's something recognizable in the brand um, that relates to them as an audience member. And so it was actually right around that time that I also started teaching at NYU, uh, a management class um, in television management and industry uh, as part of Stern. And that's really where uh, nothing, nothing um, you know, makes you wake up stupid every day, like standing in front of 70 or 80 uh, college students who are all paying 50 or $60,000 to hear what you have to say because they'll take you down. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was then that um, I really started retraining my brain, using them as a Petri dish on how the future of television was going to take shape. It's, and I think we'll get to that because you've spent a lot of time thinking about the youth of today and, in fact, programming an entire television brand for them. But go back to, there was this interesting coalescing of, of brands and there was some acquisition and merger activity in the cable digital programming pool. And it's, it's almost like at that time, it feels to me like it was the second wave. We launched a lot of channels when digital opened up channel space and a lot of them were rushed to market, I think. So maybe the brand identities weren't well established. But is that a, did you see, you think that's fair, a fair way to kind of describe the the iteration or the maturing of the, of the digital well, cable market? I think that what wound up happening was a lot of channel groups decided that they were going to launch brands as flanker brands or as extensions in order to take up real estate on the dial and also, frankly, to generate revenues through subscription and, and other um, advertising. Um, and, and I think what's, what's been borne out is that you, you can't really program a, a channel and create a brand as a hobby. Um, you have to really staff up um, each brand 
to the capacity of creating um, something of real value, both for the operator and for the audience member. And you know, a lot of the the stress that comes in our industry comes from what I think the cable operator sees as, well, these conglomerates are forcing smaller channels on me in order to get the bigger channels. And that's really where a, a great amount of the consternation comes from. And I think that the that the, both the operators have, have been incredibly vocal about that. But I also think that a number of the larger programming groups have begun to realize that. And you've seen, you know, for example, NBC Universal, Comcast slim down its offerings and kind of really bolster its smaller brands, which I think is, is really incredibly intelligent and I think will create long-term value for them. From a programming standpoint, with what you were doing at, at IFC and Sundance, how did you guys make decisions about programs to pursue or to invest in, both from a standpoint of, of brand integrity, but also you got to have hits at some point. Mm-hmm. So, what, what was that process like at that time? The the, the I I na- you know in the in the last ten years, I've spent the vast majority of my time trying to focus on um, on the audience first, and so we do we did there a tremendous amount of research, a segmentation study. Um, surveys, ethnographies, which I'm a big believer on in because a quantitative study is great. It gives you pure numbers. Mm-hmm. But when you can go here directly from the consumer's mouth in the environment where they're enjoying your product, um, that is incredibly telling. And so it started with research there. Um, Sundance, we did a very similar effort. And then most recently in the endeavor I'm in now, we did you know almost two years worth of research before we you know announced our programming slate and really got into it in a big way. And it and it was you know it was the um, it was the crystal ball or you know who knows how well the future will come out. But it it, it was the kind of um, decision maker for us was there was a white space out there and there is a consumer that's not necessarily being served um, by the programming options that are available. To me, it all starts with with research. Um, it all starts with getting to know what audience needs to be served, um, because you know, to be honest with you, the last thing America needs is another, you know, kind of bland adults twenty five fifty four general entertainment network. Um, we have a lot of those, and you know, you can hear consumers complaining. There, there's actually too much to watch at cer- some certain point. High quality content will always win out, I believe, but understanding who you're serving and what motivates them first that's that's where it always starts with me so if you take if you take a show when i watch portlandia i always see you show up as the executive producer in, mm-hmm. in the credit and i think we talked before and you you really uh, encourage the development of the city of Portland as a character in that mm-hmm. show, which obviously has has resonated well but I was like my one big note on that show <laughs> was you know the show that we got pitched the show uh, by Carrie and Fred and by uh, the folks at Broadway video brilliant group. And you know they wanted to do a sketch comedy show, and they were going to shoot it in New York. And my one, and they had shot the test stuff in Portland. And I said, you know, my one big note on that show—I really didn't give any other notes on that show in the entire run that I worked on it—was, um, you know, I don't understand why we need another sketch comedy show in New York. Portland is the character of distinction here. Just make Portland the main character. It's exactly what you're just talking about, though, yeah. right? You know, stepping away from the tried and true and the bland, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, that show is interesting too because I think that some of their early work started out um, on the internet. Yeah, Thunder Ant was what, what was pitched to us, mm-hmm. and they were. I mean, Fred and Carrie had done it as basically a hobby during the summer when Fred had had breaks. He and Carrie were friends. She's a very funny person. They decided to shoot these interesting little web videos in in, in Portland, 
And really what rung true with for me and, and Dan Pasternak and Debbie DeMontro and, and Jen Caserta was the, the weirdness of Portland. You know, those two bookstore ladies, mm-hmm. um, some of the other characters there, the bike messenger, um, they were all very distinct to Portland per se, but also to places like Portland, like Austin and Silver Lake and Williamsburg. And that's really what we were trying to capture. But Portland personified it um, in a way that very few other places can. And and anyone who's ever been to Portland understands how much that show is is a reflection of the people who live there and the and the mentality of the people who live there. You talked about audience first and research. Um, did, did did both of those precepts play a role in Portlandia, for instance? Um, they 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 played. What we found was the audience that we were serving already. So we had a growing audience on IFC, and as we rebranded, we did a tremendous amount of research. And what we found was that they loved comedy. Um, that a, a, a big part of what turns audiences on around independent film also can be seen in the more subversive comedy out there. Um, and so at that time, we went out and got a lot of great classic subversive comedy like Mr. Show and Larry Sanders, Ben Stiller Show. Um, and we wanted to try to fill in uh, the schedule with original programming that met that same mentality. So we actually at that time launched two shows, The Onion News Network yeah, right. and Portlandia. And we actually thought that The Onion News Network was going to be the big hit. Um, it had 10 million uh, uh, visitors on The Onion uh, page, uh, uh, the website. And we thought that that was going to be the monster hit. It actually was the lead-in for the hour. And then Portlandia came after. Um, so, yeah, we actually were trying to fill a, a spoken need. Um, they, they named shows specifically, Arrested Development being one of them, which actually was running on the network. Um, Mr. Show was another and a bunch of others. So we wanted to find shows that fit that, 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 you know, that hunger. Um, and what wound up happening was the audience spoke. The Onion did pretty well, but Portlandia became this cult hit. Um, it really struck a nerve. And I think part of it was the city of Portland and how unique that landscape was is. Um, part of it, I think, was hipster culture mm-hmm. and the, the genius way that that creative team pokes fun at hipster culture while also loving it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very strange. And that was something we discussed uh, early it, on as well. It's very respectful in a way. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and, and people in Portland love the show. Um, but lastly, I really have to applaud the, the, the creative genius of the, of the director and, and showrunner on the show. His name is John Kreisel, a young man um, who had had a baby like during the production of, of, the, of the pilot. Um, and he, you know, he's like the third Beatle. Um, there's Fred and there's Carrie, but John really gives um, that show its imprimatur, um, gives it its filter, you know, from the opening credits and the music that, that that's chosen there to just the, the fact that there's this the, these characters that, you know, like a Gary Larson cartoon, which is a reference that many people under 30 won't get. But, um, you know, there's this universe and you can see the characters even when they're not in the foreground. You can see them running around in the background. That meta and kind of layered approach to sketch comedy, really, you have to go back to... Um, Monty Python and some of the classic sketch, but even then, this was a brand new voice out there. And he edited the first season, I think, entirely on his own in his basement. Um, I mean, it was really a labor of love. And the three of them together really gelled and created what is, I think, still one of the most unique voices on television. So, Evan, as you're developing breakthrough original content for television, all this stuff is going on in the background over Hulu's launching and, and Google's just paid a million, a billion six to buy this thing called YouTube, which 
we all sort of, you know, were puzzled at at the time. But how did that, did that worry you? I mean, what, what was your way of reckoning with this new environment? I don't, I mean, first of all, there, there are plenty of people in the television business who are far more successful than I am at both programming and running, and running channels, many of whom I worked with at AMC Networks. And so, you know, to say that I have, it, have any kind of all-knowing answers to this stuff is, is, is folly. That said, I'm very much a person who enjoys chaos. I, I think that um, change is important. Uh, change is how I've, I've built my entire career, um, helping create change, but also jumping on change when it comes. Um, and I believe that the change in the industry, if embraced, will only make the industry stronger. Um, we have released a, a piece of research today that shows that 18 to 34-year-olds um, th- watch as much television as they ever have. They're just doing it on many different devices that are at times not being measured correctly. And in fact, the streaming of video, of television, is not, is not eroding the, tra- the traditional television business. It's actually enhancing it. Um, you know, the number one way that people in their, in their teens and 20s watch television is still live when it's on TV. Um, they do binge watch, they do time shift, but what's happened is, is they're using that to catch up and then really because of, social, because of social media, they feel that they have to be at that show when it's on because it's blowing up on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or GetGlue. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing a renaissance in live television exactly. viewing that I don't know that anyone anticipated. I'm not saying I anticipated it, but because I've been around this generation so much, I have two kids in this generation. I teach 70 kids a year at NYU in this generation. We do a tremendous amount of research on them. There's, there's, there, this generation does not want to, and no television viewers out there want to abandon television. Mm-hmm. But the value exchange has to be good. And to me, that was the, op- the opportunity was to create programming that created value around the pay TV ecosystem for this generation. Um, and that's, that's really what I'm pursuing now um, in, the, in the new gig. It's the, that communal aspect of television, which I grew up with. I'm older than you, but I remember watching Roots, and everybody watched Roots, right? I mean, everybody watched it, but we sort of lost that. It felt like t- television was becoming maybe a more isolating experience. Well, what's think? happened in 1972, the number one show on television was, do you know? No. Uh, All in the Family. Of course. Okay. 67 million people every week watched All in the Family. Not the very special episode after the Super Bowl, but every single week, mom and dad and Sis and bro sat down on the couch at the same time and watched Meathead and Archie argue mm-hmm. shit out. Yeah. And a lot got resolved because you'd see them argue it out. And then the next day, the Meatheads and the Archies, I'm not saying that show helped them find common ground, but it certainly gave them a language. Um, and, and really, mountains were moved in, in great part because of shows like that and M.A.S.H., um, because we we shared them all together as a communal experience and realized things at, at, at the same time. Mary Tyler Moore show, Maud, you know, the abortion episode of Maud, a lot got solved because of TV. And frankly, the coverage of the Vietnam War was mm-hmm. the thing that probably ended that war. Um, now, uh, television, two things have, have happened. Because of the fragmentation, and this is because of time shift, but it's also because of the proliferation of programming brands on, on cable and on pay TV, um, because of that, viewing has become fragmented. So 67 million people was the number one show now. Now it's rare when the number one show has 20 million. Um, you know, it's rare when the top five or six shows combined have 60 million. Um, and the, the upside of that, the positive aspect of that, is that as a storyteller, 
you can speak very specifically to an audience. Matt Weiner doesn't have to create Mad Men for mom and dad and sis and bro. It's for a very specific audience. Portlandia is not, doesn't need to service 60 million people mm -hmm. at once. Archer doesn't have to reach four quadrants in order to be successful. Well, We Sunny in Philadelphia is a very successful show that does, you know, two million people. Mm -hmm. Stephen Colbert is about to become, you know, the king of late night. He gets about a million, million and a half people a night. So it's really, as a storyteller and as a producer, there's never been a better time because you don't have to do huge numbers in order to be successful. You can make a very specific story for a very specific audience. However, what's also happened is this fragmentation has created these silos that you just mentioned. There is no meeting in the middle anymore. Fox viewers watch Fox. MSNBC viewers watch MSNBC. I'm not sure who's watching CNN. And you have, you know, you have echo chambers being created. Um, and this cultural interloping um, that organically happened when there were only three television choices um, doesn't really happen as much anymore. And we don't resolve things as a culture mm -hmm. in the same organic way that we used to. That said, when you layer social media on top of it, what happens is there, there is a cultural interloping because of, of almost envy. Well, I see that happening over there, and geez, they're all talking about Red Wedding, or they're all talking about, you know, girls, or they're all talking about, you know, Hit Record, which is a show that we did. Um, actually, I might, I might want to check that out. I'll wait for it to get on a platform where it's convenient for me to watch 13 in a row so that I can decide. Um, and you saw this happen, Breaking Bad, I think, is the best example. Mm -hmm. There's a show that was doing 2 million, 3 million people a week in its first few seasons. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, it took on this huge momentum, um, mostly because everybody was telling everybody else over social media, you got to watch the show, you got to watch the show. The advent of the end of the series also helped create an urgency there. But if it wasn't for things like Netflix, there's a whole audience members that wouldn't have you know, found that show. And then in the last episode, about 11 million people watch it, including my daughter who sent me a picture of her and 40 of her friends crammed into her dorm you know, rec room mm -hmm. to watch the show live when it was on TV. Now, none of them were recorded in the Nielsen numbers, and I'm sure there were dorms all across the country that were the same thing that was happening. So technology is, is, is usually a solution. It's, it's rarely a, a, an issue unless you choose like the music industry did to make it one. So now the question is, how does this industry, how does pay TV, uh, 35 years ago, pay TV, cable, was the disruptive technology exactly. in television? Right. We seeded that over the last you know, 25 years. We've become Willfully, the man. Did it just happen? Was it a consequence of um, economics? Or? There's, there's, uh, I, I think it's a part of, part what happens with, partly what happens in an industry is an entire industry can go blind in all the same way. Okay. Um, so you can really ignore problems if the entire industry chooses to ignore them. The music industry is a brilliant example of that. The, the auto industry a couple of years ago was a brilliant example of that. Um, and I think that economics is one. The, the money is just too good from the, yeah. from the, uh, from the pay TV you know, environment. Um, secondarily, um, there's stasis and inertia. Um, and so you know, why, you know, why destroy one piece of your business in order to create a new one when this one's going so well? 
Um, and then lastly is, you know, it's generational. I think you, you, you're starting to see a bunch of leaders come into the industry who, you know, really believe in the future of pay TV. So much of what we talk about right now in this industry is about staving off decline, mm-hmm. you know, preventing decline. This is the whole cord cutting yeah, but terminology. Yeah, what, what happened to growing the business? That's what frustrates me when, yeah. when we get together as a group is, you know, we, we stand up and cheer when pay TV doesn't lose subscribers in a quarter. But there's a million and a half or more, far more than that, people graduating from college every single year. And if we're not gaining them as subscribers, where are they going? And, you know, there's a great HBO ad out there right now that shows uh, young people sitting on the couch of their parents' house watching HBO and encouraging them to basically borrow their HBO logon from their parents and go watch it somewhere else. Well, that's great, but how about getting your own subscription? And how about the industry creates packages for that constituency that is of value to them? And that's what the industry, I think, needs to start embracing is, why does Netflix strike a chord so much with this consumer base? 60% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 have a, a Netflix subscription or access to one. Mm-hmm. Not all of them pay, pay for it. We as an industry really need to create competitive products because cable TV and pay TV is a far better product than any of these OTT products. It's much more satisfying. I can watch it when it's in season. I can watch it with my friends. I know it's always on. I can take it with me in, in many different places, but we're, we're not necessarily adapting as a product um, I think as fast as we need to. It's interesting because in reading the, the clips and prep for this interview and talking to you now, you still consider yourself a cable guy, right? I mean, it seems like you still have a, a, a lot of affinity. Yeah, for the I think industry. it's the future of, of television. I, I, still. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 105, 106 million pay TV subscribers in the United States. Um, no one wants to cancel their, their television subscription. They feel they have to because they're not getting the value out of it that, that's necessary. Um, you know, it's television is the most popular, most liked, most powerful media on the planet, um, including the internet. And and Evan, when you say television, Hulu counts in that definition, yeah, right? Yeah, if or, you're watching t- Netflix, if counts. you're watching TV in a square, okay, um, I'm to me, television. you're watching television yeah. no matter where it is. But but Netflix and Hulu and and Amazon Prime don't exist without the pay TV ecosystem first. That's where the backbone of, of television is coming from. Um, yeah, I do believe. Everything I've learned over the last 10 years has, has proven to me that, um, that, that the incumbents in this industry, in the television industry, still hold all the cards. Whether we choose to play them or not is on us. And I really do think that it's the programmer that, that has to make the change, not, not the distributor. The distributor is providing a service to a customer base. Um, the programmer has to get right with the fact that we may not have the same um, economy in this industry that we did 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, Well, let's talk about the big move you made. Um, You joined, well, first of all, just tell me about participant media and what was compelling about that opportunity. So about uh, three years ago, maybe maybe a little bit longer, um, you know, I was having a great time at at AMC Networks. I was working on some great brands. There's great people there. It was, it was a good job. Um, and it was some, a job I could probably have done for, you know, for the rest of my career. Um, however, uh, I do like change. I, I do uh, understand that you know, if you're not changing, you're, you're beginning to, to die. That's how I look at it, um, especially when you get to be my age. And um, you know, I was thinking about what was going to be, where did I want to be at 
60. Um, and I started looking around at, at, at what I wanted to do. And, and to a certain extent, when you work at a place long enough, there are times where you get promoted past the things that you love to do. Mm. And in my last job, I was spending a tremendous amount of time in windowless conference rooms with uh, you know, a bunch of executives talking about spreadsheets. And not that I don't love a good spreadsheet um, <laughs> and not that I don't love windowless conference rooms like this one, um, but uh, uh, it was just, I was spending less and less time doing what I loved every single week. Um, and I work really hard. And if I was going to spend as much time as I do away from my family, I wanted to know that, A, I was going to get to put my hands in the clay, um, and B, that I was actually going to be able to make a lasting impact both in the industry and in the culture. Those are two things that are incredibly important to me. And it was an aha moment. You know, I, I like to make change. Um, and I have a long history of, of working on boards and with nonprofits. I actually came originally from the nonprofit uh, world, from the public theater. Um, and so I started to, to look for things in the industry that might allow me to do that, whether they were teaching at NYU or joining boards or, you know, really one of the things I was considering was starting my own business, mm -hmm. um, a, a programming business. Um, and, in, and through the course of that, I got to meet and, and, and really spend some time with the people at Participant Media. And Participant is a 10-year-old company founded by Jeff Skoll, who was the first uh, employee and first president of eBay, who made billions of dollars uh, doing that and then was one of the first uh, signatories to the Giving Pledge. And he decided to give away a good deal, if not all of his fortune, um, to make the world a better place. And he founded Skoll... Um, uh, the Skull Group, um, which is dedicated to, uh, you know, making the world more sustainable and more peaceful. Skull uh, Global Forum, Skull Global Threats, and Participant Media. And the premise around Participant Media was that a story well told could help create change, that entertainment actually could inspire social change. And they were a film studio exclusively up until about a few years ago. Name a couple titles. Oh, my gosh. Charlie um, Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson's War, Good Night and Good Luck, Syriana, An Inconvenient Truth, Truth The Cove, Waiting for Superman, Food, Inc., mm -hmm. um, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Lincoln, The Help. Um, so really important films. And by the way, all the highest quality, even the films that were not necessarily financially successful, you can't say enough about the quality that's in every film that participant makes. Um, and... Uh, they had been primarily or exclusively a, a film studio up until that point. And Jeff really wanted to get into TV. He felt that TV was too powerful a platform to pass up. Um, and we got to discussing it. And, you know, you know, there are a lot of executives in this business who can, can do TV as good, if not better than me. Um, there are a lot of executives in, in the world and in media who can really do social change and, and, and uh, um, you know, action really, really well. Um, but I actually have a nice little marriage of the two. Um, and that was what was really, you know, came out of our conversations. Um, and we decided to partner up. Um, they, they gave me a gig there. I was the first and only employee in the TV division about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago this week. Um, and now we have about 80 people in the television division. Since then, we've actually bought two different channels, married them together, um, and relaunched them as, as a new programming brand called Pivot. And what, what convinced me to make the change was the mission of the company, a double bottom line company, which was something that I had really never even conceived was possible 
Um, but now you look around and there are a number of them out there. Tom's Shoes is, is a good example of that. Warby Parker's another one. Um, but Participant was is really the, the exclusive one in the, in the media industry. And uh, the idea that my bonus at the end of every year would be judged not just on the revenue that we generated, but also on the change we made, that was perfect for me. And, and everybody who, knew, who knows me, when they heard that that was the gig, all of them, even my old bosses said, well, that's like you made the job for yourself. And I can't say enough about how gratifying it is to go into work and, and have everybody kind of spin from that same hymnal every single week. That said, it's a big charge to start a new television from yeah. scratch, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you're the first employee. What you sat at a desk. What did you do? Well, first, I had a, to to work on negotiating the the purchase agreements of of Documentary Channel um, from the owners and from uh, for Halogen from from that owner, and then work on building the business plan of combining them into one, moving the operations. One was in South Carolina, the other was in Nashville, moving them to Los Angeles and New York, building out that infrastructure. I mean, there was there was very little, um, that there was no traffic, there was no, you know, there was all the little things, the scheduling, um, the, the grinding minutiae of running a business. Yeah, but building something from ground up is, it's really gratifying work. I mean, you, you walk in every, it's like raising a barn. Every day you can see progress being made. Um, and you don't get to do that very often. I've gotten to do a lot of things in this industry that not a lot of people get to do. Buy a channel, bring it in, integrate it into a larger, uh, into a larger entity as we did at Sundance. You know, three quarters of those types of things fail. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the opportunity to do that there with all those resources was amazing. To be able to, to construct a brand new television brand and business and operation from the ground up, hiring every employee, um, coming up with the audience, coming up with the brand, coming up with the programming with this great team that I've been able to assemble, it, you don't really, uh, it's, it's a once in a lifetime oppor opportunity. Evan, from, a, from an industry structural standpoint, is it possible, would it have been possible for Pivot or is it possible for anybody else to start from scratch with a new you know, building distribution cable market by cable market and satellite deal by satellite? Do you have to have that base? No, I, I mean, I, I, I personally don't see how the, the, the dollar spent can be returned as quickly as buying distribution. I, uh, and, and that's a kind of charged phrase, but buying another brand and, mm -hmm. and turning it into something else. It's happened. I mean, Revolt is doing it. Um, there are a couple of others as well. Um, but when you look across the spectrum at the channels that will actually sur survive and succeed, most of them started with a nice head start. In the case of Revolt, even, you know, their deal with Comcast was a huge advantage mm -hmm. uh, to them in the marketplace. Um, in the case of, of Pivot, knowing that we had that base of about $40 million to start with, I mean, it just put us on the map in a way that, that we couldn't have done if we were literally going hat in hand saying, please give us distribution. So talk about the business of pay television today from your vantage point. How does Pivot make money? Um, primarily, it's an advertising-based business. I mean, we do have very good deals with a bunch of uh, uh, cable affiliates and pay TV uh, uh, outlets like uh, Dish and Direct. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a dual revenue stream, but I actually, I, I see it as much more than dual. Um, one of the great things that Netflix has offered is a, is a, is a new home video market. That's a, that's a pretty powerful thing. And when the DVD started dying, I think the industry thought, oh my God, that's a huge revenue stream that's going to go away. But EST through iTunes and SVOD through the, the various players, as long as you stay true to your cable affiliate uh, agreements, 
um, you know, that's, that's, it's nice to know that those revenues are there. Foreign revenue is a, has actually been a really nice thing for us in the, in the first couple of years, being able to distribute content um, around the world. It also helps the, the other part of our double bottom line, which is the mission, uh, reaching other territories. Um, you know, I, I do believe, however, that video is, is, is primarily going to be some combination of subscribed content, so I think that um, cable uh, subscriptions, SVOD subscriptions, those types of ongoing annuities will be one of the major drivers, and the other is advertising. There is no better advertising media than television. Nothing comes even close. Um, reach certainly is a big part of that, but the engagement. Mm -hmm. If you look at other viable forms of advertising out there in the world, um, there are things that work, um, but the thing that works best always is television, and that's because there's an emotional exchange between an audience and a storyteller that can't be replicated in any other media. Let's talk about your audience target for Pivot, and you've done a lot of research and thought a lot about mm -hmm. um, this brood we call the millennials. What are they all about, and why do they need a television channel? Um, the, first of all, I, I actually prefer to refer to them as Generation Y. Millennials is, a, is really a, a packaging concept that came up at the end of the last century. Um, and Generation Y is, you know, they're the, they're, they're, they get a lot of baggage. They get a lot of, um, uh, a lot of knocks by people who are my age and older who don't really understand the motivations of this generation. Um, this generation is the most digitally native, so they, they understand technology better than any generation that's come before. Um, they're most uh, worldwide. Because of technology, they know more about their world and about their generation than any generation that's come before them. Um, but they're also, because of two major events, um, which would be 9-11 and the Great Recession, much more concerned with the future of the planet. Um, and that doesn't just mean the environment, although that's a big part of it, but it's about society and about um, how we deal with each other, things like race, um, things like sexual preference but also you know, sustainability from a different standpoint, which is you know, you know, the way cultures get along and, and, and conflict. Um, so this generation is actually, I, I refer to them as the new greatest generation. They, they hold a lot in common with the greatest generation, most notably born into great privilege, very adept at technology, asked to save the world from problems they didn't create. Mm. Not volunteer necessarily always. You know, the greatest generation, we all love to sing their praises and they saved the world from fascism and many other problems. But they were drafted into service. They were called upon. We face the same types of circumstance now. We need this generation to save the planet from itself. Our generation's pretty much fucked it up. And we've handed them a whole lot of problems that they didn't create that they now must solve. So what I really don't understand is when older generations look at them as narcissistic or navel-gazing or self-entitled, you know, the, I think it's, it's right for them to be a little bit selfish and wonder what's going to happen to this planet that, that, that they're going to have, have to live on. Um, so that's a big driver. That's, that's really why we decided to focus on, on this generation is that they actually do care more than most There's a sense others. of purpose. Yeah, 90% of them through our research uh, is passionate about at least one cause. We see that somewhere north of 40% or 50% um, is passionate about six or more causes. Again, technology really helps in that though. It's very easy to protest when protesting means changing your Facebook profile. 
Um, and by the way, that's a viable form of protest now. Just ask the people who are pushing uh, PIPA and SOPA. Mm -hmm. um, just ask you know, all the gay marriage advocates out there. Um, so when you look at how social change is made now, which is often through these types of these forms of social media, of course this generation is going to use that platform to create change. Um, and then the other aspects of it is, you know, they their their priorities are not exactly what the priorities of the previous generations are, but they're also not out of whack either. They they believe in family. In fact, they're closer to their parents probably than any generation coming before. They care about having a job of purpose. 80% of them say they prefer to make less money to work at a company whose values they agree with. Um, that's 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 very strange, especially for someone from Gen X who it was all about the paycheck right out of college. Um, so we've created a programming brand that we don't think has been present for them. There are great shows out there that they enjoy that have purpose and take on issues. From different places. Though. Yeah. Um, we, we air a couple of them ourselves. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Friday Night Lights, etc., etc. Um, but is there a home where, A, their intelligence is going to be respected innately? Um, where the faces on the screen, the people who are creating the content, are from their generation. When you look at somebody like Meghan McCain, or Joseph Gordon-Levitt, or Josh Thomas, all of whom are on our network, they're all of the generation, and not just mouthpieces. They're actually the creators of the show, they're the producers of the show, they're the originators of the concept. That's important. And when you think about this generation, they created Facebook, they created Snapchat, they created Twitter. Um, they can create things. We can give them power, and good things can happen from it. But you, you have to you have to trust in them, and you have to give them something to respond to. What do you want to What do you want to be for them? I, I, mean, I remember there was a time, might have been a fleeting moment in my day, when MTV was our thing. Mm -hmm. was like, that is my channel. Somebody finally made me a television channel. Mm -hmm. Is that what you want to be for Gen Y? Or um, yeah, I mean, we definitely want to. We want to reflect this generation in in a very specific way, which is we want to reflect the best parts of who they are back to them. And but it goes back to calling them into service. We definitely believe that this channel is a clarion call. It's time. Join. Mm -hmm. We're not going to tell them what to do. We'll give them various options, and we do hundreds of different ways that they can actually make change within their cultures and in their lives on a monthly basis. We give them a platform, our, our website called TakePart.com, to take action there. Um, but really what we want is to tell stories that inspire them to go out and make change on their own or to gather together in a community. And that's really, I think, the big differentiator within this generation from previous ones is that there's a sense of community there that is much larger and much stronger than ever before, driven in good part because of technology. I see these behaviors that you're expressing in my kids. I'm just like, oh yeah, of course. How old are you kids? I've got one that's uh, 26 and one that's 23. Right, so. they're right in the heart of it. Um, I'm so taken by what you said about all in the family earlier in our conversation. And I feel like a lot of those principles about maybe we can, um, maybe not shape opinion, but influence opinion a little bit, um, taking root in what you're doing today. Is that fair? To the, I think it, we, we, want to, we want to give our viewers and this generation enough information to formulate their own opinion. This isn't about, there will be opinions expressed. When you do a live television show with Meghan McCain and yeah. Eddie Wong and Jacob Soboroff, opinions will be given the opinions of the people on the show. Joe Gordon-Levitt has a tremendous number of really great ideas, especially about how to make television. You look at that show, which is the world's first op truly open source television show. 
that's a very specific idea. But we never come out and say, well, this is the only way. This is meant to inspire a conversation with you and your community about what you want to do now. And if you, we can help, terrific. If you can go out and do it on your own, also great. We've got a couple of really amazing new shows. One's um, called Human Resources about this company called TerraCycle, which was founded by a guy, Tom, who's 31, out of his dorm room at Princeton, which is really the, the world's leading company for upcycling. They take trash and turn it into new products. That's not what the show is about, though. The show is about what does it look like to work at a place where you believe yeah. in what they're doing. It's not always perfect, but it's always interesting. And, and we are doing another show about uh, young entrepreneurs here in, uh, in Fairfax, on the Fairfax, in the Fairfax region of Los Angeles, that are about primarily young people of color starting their own businesses, starting their own careers, many of whom it's, they're the first in their families to start a business. You know, it's taken for granted in a number of families in this country that, well, I'll just do what my dad did or I'll just do what my mom did. But that's not always how it works out in, in many communities across this country. And so we're trying to be a reflection of what's actually going on out there and to provide best practices and opportunities for the community to learn from each other on how to get shit done. I have, I have two more questions for you. One is, one is I, I was interested in, in reading your bio and how you sort of kicked around and found your way into the media and in, in communications business. And like everybody's path, it's, it's a not winding linear. path. Yeah. But what would a 23-year-old Evan Shapiro um, do today? Where, where would be your, your pursuit point, what would you say? That's a great question. That's a really good question. And I actually get asked it a lot. I think it really depends on, on who that Evan Shapiro is and what their interests are. But I think that we're about to go through a huge renaissance of independent television production in the United States. Nothing against the big studios at all. But there's a lot of overhead there. There's a lot of infrastructure. There's a lot of things about those studios that don't allow for adaptability or nimbleness. Um, but there are some really terrific small production companies that are ha growing up here in the United States um, who are making the best shows on television um, and certainly the most popular shows on television. That's where I would go push somebody to go work, is to go work at one of these smaller independent channels or, or um, networks. Uh, I'm sorry, can I say that one more time? That's really where I would push somebody who is looking to get into the business today would be to go and try to get a gig, whether it's pushing a broom or answering the phones at uh, an independent production company. That's where I think the rubber is really hitting the road. I think that that's where the great creativity is coming out of. We work not exclusively, but we work predominantly with small, uh, independently run uh, television production companies run oftentimes by the artists themselves. Um, that's where some really great stuff is happening. And I think a lot of the change in the industry, the, the, the cross-platform stuff, the brand integration stuff, the storytelling innovations, you look again, I have to go to Joe's, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's show, Hit Record. That, that show would never have survived at a major studio. It never would have gotten out of development, frankly. Um, and he'll tell you, it, it probably wouldn't have been able to be made the way it was made on any other network. Um, but because he has this independent production company called Hit Record, and he's working with a brilliant independent producer, Brian Graydon, and because he became to a truly independent, non-public company like Participant, it just gelled. And we made, I mean, I'm proud of a lot of things in my career. That show is a difference maker. 
And it, and, it, and it shows that television of the past doesn't necessarily have to be the television of the future. It doesn't abandon what's great about television. It adapts what's great about television into a new format. And it's, it, if I do nothing else in my time at Participant, that's the thing I'll point to as, wow, we, we really made something special. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in, in, the, in this world where some of the, the scarcity in positions are sort of gone and there's more opportunity, I guess that's reflected in what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and frankly, you know, you talk to, to, to people who run businesses now and the smart ones are inviting the young people in on day one to offer their ideas. They may not take the ideas, but they're listening to them. Those are the companies that will win, the companies that embrace this generation and really include them in their decision-making. I want to leave, well, I want to ask you what's most fun about your job, but if there's a subject we haven't touched on, now's the opportunity to riff about it. Um, I think that the thing that's most fun about my job is, are the people that I get to work with. You know, you, this, this industry is very sexy. It attracts, you know, very smart, very energetic, um, very passionate people. But then you add that mission to it, and suddenly the quality of, of people, the quality of talent you attract is... It's remarkable. It, it, you know, I don't know that I was prepared for how much the participant model was going to attract the best and brightest from the talent pool, but from the executive pool as well. Um, that's that's stunning, and it's been really, really gratifying and just a ton of fun to just know that there's a higher purpose than just ratings and dollars and you know this the 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 treadmill that we can so often get into in, in this business and you know frankly the television industry i actually do a lot with the cable center to help the the industry recruit the best and the brightest into our into our talent pool i think if we manage to shift our focus just enough to embrace change and embrace this new consumer we will have no problems attracting the best and the brightest because it's such fun to work in television. Um, and if you can look towards the future and help use the platform to make change, we will get the best and the brightest. We will win. We will survive you know, well into our next 50 or 60 years. It's, it's easy to have a more optimistic view of not just cable television, but kind of the world <laughs> talking to you. So well, thanks and, for that. And by the way, the, this generation gives you that optimism. When you yeah. spend enough time with people in their, in their late teens, early 20s, early 30s, you can't help. They understand the problems the world faces, but they definitely think that, that there's a bright future out for them and that they're going to be a part of making it happen. Well, hopefully, maybe we can we can check back in um, in another five or six years and see see how. Great. Hopefully, I'll still be working in the cable industry. This has been great. And um, Evan Shapiro, thank you so much for being a friend of the Cable Center and for sitting down with us um, today for the Cable Center's Oral History Series. I'm Stuart Schley. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. You've just heard the oral history of Evan Shapiro. I hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening. <laughs>